What I know are tornadoes. You know when they're coming if you've grown up in Kansas. You can feel something in the air on an unusually sweltering and still day. It's always near evening, it seems, when the sky begins to turn a putrid yellow-green. Among my earliest memories are the sirens going off in the trailer park where we lived, my dad grabbing my hand and running down the block as fast as we could go, the sound of sirens in the air. We went to an underground cement bunker where other families from the park were sheltering. I was as scared of the bunker as the tornado, an echoing concrete box lit by a single pull-chain light bulb dangling from the ceiling, spiders and webs on every surface so you couldn't sit down. Dad liked to watch the tornadoes at the top of the stairs. He'd stick his head up under the sheet metal trap door and tell me to come look. Because in Kansas, you can see for miles in all directions. So a funnel cloud you could see forming in relative safety. I always refused, terrified that if I went, the tornado would descend instantly upon us and suck me out of the shelter that we'd be spun up and away with all the houses and cars and cows, Wizard of Oz style. Then there are those who watch from their porches, confident that they know the feel of it after all these years better than the weatherman's warning. They say that there is a moment when your ears start to pop and everything goes suddenly and deathly still. Then, in an instant, the sound of a thousand freight trains fill your ears and the moment of chaos is upon you. And then there's the fallout, the long quiet after the moment of devastation. Friends are first on the scene always to cover what can be saved with tarps. But then come the gawkers, the press, bad enough, the President of the United States. When Greensburg, a town a few miles from where I lived, was wiped out in 2007, a few folks seemed downright glad to have traded their homes for a photo op with President Bush. The build-up, the chaos, the starting from scratch, you know it by heart, even if you don't like it. If you lived in first century Jerusalem, you had things you knew in your bones, too, like the coming of a Messiah. On either side of Jesus in history are a dozen would-be Jewish Messiah figures, the person anointed by God and expected to do two things, cleanse the temple, restore it to its former glory, and overthrow the oppressive Roman government occupation. By the time Jesus comes around, the build-up is predictable. A popular 
charismatic Jewish leader would show up and begin to rally the people to declare himself king. Jesus, for his part, shows an interesting way to do so, not with a speech, but by riding in on an unbroken colt, not quite Air Force One, but still the symbol of a coming king. The crowds rallied. The city was electric. They lined the streets shouting, Hosanna. It means save. Save us. The disciples could practically taste the glory waiting for them. This was the moment. The sky turns a putrid yellow-green. There's only one way that empire handles these situations. The polarizing rebel figure becomes part of the plan for control. Empire promises peace and restoration if just one person or a few people die. That's how empire works, because that's how human beings work. We pick a scapegoat to establish peace between ourselves. The small dose of violence and retribution turns an adoring crowd into a murderous mob in a moment. It scatters a small band of brothers in seconds, lest they are devoured too. So what happens when for the first time the victim you've chosen won't lift a hand in defense? When no army is rallied, actually. What happens when this one seems to step willingly into the place of violence to take it upon himself? Well, exactly what you'd expect. He dies, painfully, just like all the others, just maybe more quickly. The funnel cloud descends an impersonal force of chaos at this point, a moment of destruction that it seems like most folks would gladly trade for a photo op with Pilate. The buildup, the chaos, they started from scratch within just a couple of days with this one. But there were a few who noticed something different happening. That when this victim stepped into that place of pain, what he took on was more than just Rome or the authorities or an angry mob. In his life, this victim had always spoken in such a way to make it seem like Rome was just a symptom, like it wasn't a people he was looking to set free but the very depths of the human soul. In his life, this victim had intentionally placed himself among the sickest and the saddest, the most outcast and reviled. And now as he took the position of ultimate shame, it seemed that everything he began to take up in that moment was not just his or the times, but the swirling, chaotic vortex of every horror and despair and fear and abuse and death 
that humankind had ever and will ever know a terrible gathering of all our nightmares. The pain that renders every human heart rent his. And witnesses noticed that the very earth itself shook with the gathering of it all in one man's outstretched arms. And then, silence. A quiet morning broken only by the sound of women headed to the tomb with their tarps. They went there to cover whatever could be saved. They found that what might be saved was nothing less than all of us. Amen.